to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, I'm your host, Alan Feely, based in Seville in South of Spain. And I'm joined today by Mark Dole, Deputy Futures Editor of Goal, based in Bologna, and Adam Digby, the author of Juventus, A History of Black and White, and co-founder of The Turing Crowd, and he's based in Turin. Uh, how are you, Mark? I'm not too bad. Uh, pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for the invite. Fantastic. And how are you, Adam? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me on, too. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, today's show is going to be about one of the most interesting characters in European football, Andrea Perlo. Uh, as a footballer, he was probably one of the greatest deep-lying playmakers in the history of the game. And as a person, he's also been a style icon and one of the most cool characters to ever grace our game as well. Uh, now he's beginning a third phase of his life as a football coach. He was appointed under-23 coach of uh, Juventus uh, this summer and then just a week later or so he was appointed the head coach of Juventus the team after Maurizio Sarri. He was born on May 19th 1979 in Flero, Italy and he began his career at Brescia uh, where he won Serie B in 1997. I just wanted to ask you guys what was the context in which Pirlo emerged at Brescia regarding Italian football? Obviously its heyday was in the late 80s and early 90s where it was the center of the universe but was things on the wane as you reached into the early 2000s was the balance of power shifting somewhat uh if we could start with you mark i suppose it was in in, in a sense but it, it was certainly before the financial bubble burst in in, in syria it was still a league uh, in which you had massive transfers uh, loads of big money boys you still had you know, uh, many, many superstars. I mean, Ronaldo, the great Brazilian uh, striker, had, had, you know, arrived in 97 after his incredible year at Barcelona. So it still it still was a major, major draw uh, for world stars. And it was still, it still had that reputation as, as the place to be, as, you know, toughest league in the world, the place that you, you had to, it was the place where you had to prove yourself, really, because, you know, it was still renowned for, it's incredible defenders. It was still known as, a, as an incredibly tough physical league, uh, very hard tactically, um, a place in which it was difficult to score goals. So it, it it still had that reputation as far as I'm concerned. It was still considered the, the pinnacle, I think, even then. Even though the, the Premier League was had been completely, you know, had, was changing the game, let's say, in England, and, and there was a, you know so much money flooding in, into, into the Premier League and it was starting to attract stars. That was even still still considered then like noteworthy that they were bringing over players like you know Hullet or Zola as well because Italy was still I think the the pinnacle as far as world football was concerned. So yeah, Pirlo was coming in uh, arriving as a youngster as a kid at Brescia at a time when uh, it was very difficult for for young players to to break into the starting lineups uh, of the top squads in Italy because as he said himself uh, when he arrived at, at Inter from Brescia. You had Baggio, Jorkev, Ronaldo. He was walking into a team of superstars. So back then, yeah, it, it, it would have been very difficult for someone like Pirlo to, to claim the number 10 jersey at one of the deep top clubs like Juve, Milan, uh, Inter, because it was still, Serie A was still packed uh, full of full of top, top, top players. Yeah, and for you, Adam, uh, how was the context in which Pirlo emerged uh, in terms of on-the-pitch football and off-the-pitch um, like, what was your take and how strong Italian football was at that time? And also, how difficult, as Mark alluded to, was it for a kind of a regista to break into a team as a young man? Well, I think that 
two things from that, really. I think Mark's absolutely right. The, the league was still the strongest league in the world, 97, 98, even going into to 1999. You, you're talking Manchester United are still having their pants pulled down every time they're going to Champions League, aren't they, in that era? You know, it's... Mm. They were getting beaten by Juventus almost every season up until that semi-final in '99. Um, you're in the pre-Galactico era of Real Madrid, Barcelona, still in kind of their that after Ronaldo left to go to Inter, they kind of free fell a bit, didn't they? Until Frank yeah. Rijkaard went there, so it's it really is that kind of in between where Syria was kind of the best league by default because it had been the best, and the Premier League and La Liga weren't quite there yet, and. The, the main thing about Pilo was he was coming into a league where because of Saki and Capello's Milan and Lippi's Juve, everyone was playing pretty much 4-4-2. It was, it was, it was two banks of four. It was a, a trequartista behind a single striker, um, which was a big change from, from the way that Serie A had been into the early 90s. And Pilo broke into to the Brescia team and came to prominence a youth team international level as an actual number 10 not as a regista at all he was yeah. he was playing just behind a, a single striker um he was scoring a lot of goals he was full of running he was actually I mean, it was only three goals but the idea of andrea pilo as a, a second striker wearing the number 10 shirt and being the leading scorer at the under 21 euros in the year 2000 it it kind of jars with everything we know about pilo doesn't it but that that's that's actually what happened. He was the tournament's leading scorer as a striker, and Italy won in the under twenty one Euros. So he he was a very different player than than the Pilo that is the stereotypical image of the, the smooth Italian midfielder that we we think about when we think of him today. Mm, yeah, and he, after he left Brescia initially, he joined Inter Milan, and as we've alluded to, and he kind of failed to impose himself in the setup there and went on loan to Regina. And then back to Brescia again. And I believe it was at his spell on loan at Brescia where he was coached by Carlo Mazzone, who actually shifted him from an attacking midfielder into a more defensive position because in that Brescia team, you had Roberto Baggio. And I found this interesting quote from Baggio actually talking about the time with Pirlo. And he said, Andrea has demonstrated all his great talents and worth. When we played together, everything started with him. He always had the gift of being able to visualize and anticipate plays for everybody else. His vision, what he can do with the ball, and what he's able to create, make him a true superstar. Andrea has something which you don't see very often. There's one great assist I remember where Andrea played a ball over the top for Baggio to control and score. Um, I think it was against Sampdoria, perhaps. Uh, but just what was the impact, do you think, uh, going to you again, Mark, on playing with Baggio and kind of you know, developing around him, and of course, Mazzone moving him to a more defensive position? Do you think he was the making of him as a player? Yeah, absolutely. Adams Adams is quite quite uh, correct there in bringing it up when 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 he when he did burst on the scene and when he did kind of announce himself at that at that Euros um, in what two thousand I think it was. Um, he was a very different kind of player, and it was basically yeah he, he was converted into into the from the trequartista to the regista by by Mazzoni on on uh, I think he only played. Um, about 10 games during that six-month spell at, at, at Brescia, but it was obviously incredibly influential, uh, incredibly formative experience for him. And as you say correctly as well, um, Mazzoni wanted to put uh, Baggio and Pirlo in the same team, and, and, he, and he pushed Pirlo back. And it was, it, it was yeah, a seminal moment. It was a huge, huge, uh, hugely significant development in his career. So 
Um, he clearly learned a lot from Baggio. He, I, he said, he's often said uh, many positive things about what he learned from him, um, even in terms of free kicks. I don't think it's any coincidence that he went on to become one of, you know, he was already pretty adept at set, um, at set plays and stuff like that. But he came on, went on to become one of the great uh, set-piece specialists of, 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 of his time. So um, Baggio was, was clearly an influence there and, and in many other ways. He, uh, the Brescia one was 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 definitely uh, definitely pivotal in in terms of his uh, yeah transformation into into the player we kind of know and revere today. I think as well at, at, at Regina he, he says he's he spoken positively in the past that uh, he was in a side with Roberto Baronio and Mohamed Callon and, and he went really well for him and he, got, he actually got six or seven goals that season. Um, he, he said that was productive for him as well. He had kind of been disappointed that he was sent out on loan, but it a very beneficial experience and became a protagonist rather than just kind of a member of the support and cast at Inter where there was so many, you know, superstars and he was just making cameos here and there. So um, there were two very influential spells, but yeah, the Brescia one is, is, is colossal, I think, in terms of his development because, as you say, Mazzoni saw that he had this wonderful range of passing and it actually could be even better utilised if he was in front of the back four, you know, pinging the ball around. And you're you're quite correct to, to allude to that goal. I think against uh, against Juve when when Pirlo plays a ball from from the halfway line over to top and Baggio controls and takes around the keeper in one kind of movement. It was it was it was a beautiful moment. It was two generational talents at different stages of their careers, kind of and now bound together forever with that, that beautiful goal. So yeah, I've always found that pure football and perfection, and I, I think it's it's the abiding memory for most people of of Pirlo as the the up and coming and brand new regista that he that he became at, at Brescia. Yeah, and for you, Adam, um, would you go along with that? And also, can you remember what the perception of Pirlo was as he was coming through? What was the chat around him when he was at Inter before he went to Milan? It, it was kind of a, an unfulfilled talent when he was back at Inter. Obviously, he did he'd had that year, two thousand euros. He was that first spell at Brescia, he was looking, and Regina as well, he was looking like he was going to kick on and go to the next level. But that inter-team, it was quite poorly managed. We know that. It it was a lot of managerial hirings and firings, comings and goings. Every summer they spent millions. I mean, the the famous line is that um, Massimo Moratti spent a billion euros to to win nothing through the late 90s and early 2000s before Calciopoli. but so many players coming in and out, so many talents that they wasted, so many players who they had who became great, whether it's Pirlo, Sadoff, Roberto Carlos, they all went through that inter-team. Patrice Evra as well. They all went through that inter-team. They all never really got a look in at, at, at Inter. And then they all became like global megastars at other clubs. Um, and Pirlo was very much of that ilk. He went Then he went back to Brescia and it was like, it was really hard to see what he was going to be able to do there, how he was going to fit in, because he'd been the number 10 there. He'd been playing behind the striker. Now they had Roberto Baggio there. He's not going to take Roberto Baggio's place. They're not playing in Europe, so there's no chance of any rotation or anything. There's a, a really old-school, old-fashioned manager in Carlo Mazzoni. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Mazzoni has this, this brainwave, this moment of clarity of genius to to try Pirlo in midfield, in front of the defence. Uh, and it it was just incredible, wasn't it? The transformation from of Pilo into this, um, the hub of the team, all the play going through him. And I think at, at this stage, it's probably worth touching on the fact that uh, a regista, it's not a position. Uh, I think that's a, a common misconception that we come across when we talk about um, 
styles of football, Italian football in particular. And and you can put you can put any player in front of the defense. You can put Gennaro Gattuso there. You can put Daniele De Rossi there. They don't instantly become registi just because they're in that same place on the field. Being a regista is very much a a, a mindset, a, a calling, a vocation rather than a, a job that you're given to do. When it's it's being able to get the ball in every single area of the pitch and make the right pass every single time to keep the play going. It, it literally is the, the the Italian word for the conductor of an orchestra. And, and that's what he's expected to do. He's expected to keep the music going, to change the tempo when it needs to change. And it's it's that being in the flow of the whole game and understanding where everybody on both teams is going to be at all times. And Pilo clearly comes to embody that. Um, and he was just learning that position at Brescia, as Mark rightly said, it was only 10 games. We have this idealised memory of, of Pirlo at Brescia, captivated crucially by that goal against Juve at the Deli Alpe. Uh, and Mark got, kind of glossed over the, buried the lead a little bit there. He went round the keeper. That's Edwin van der Sar. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, and he danced round him like he's not even there, Badger. But the, the ball is superb over the top of that great Juve team. And it, it just makes the goal so easy for Badger. Um, but yeah, that... Becoming a regista, it's, we've seen it with Miral and Pjanic over the last two years. It's not something you can just decide to suddenly do. You have to kind of be almost being born to it. And I get that that's kind of waxing lyrical a little bit and a bit of creative license, but it really is a, 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 real, a reality where it's not just a position. It's kind of a whole way of seeing the game. And, and for Pilo to just... Uh, 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 at that time of his career, with that level of inexperience, to just go... Yeah, okay, I'll give that a try. And for Mazzoni to believe that he could do it and then for him to go on and do that elsewhere afterwards that we'll come on to, it really does speak volumes of the quality of Pirlo and of the the untapped quality that he had when he'd just been playing as a number 10 because he was born to play that register role, wasn't he? He, he really, yeah. when we talk about, he is that register role, isn't he? We talk about yeah. register <laughs> and you're thinking of Pirlo with a beard stroking the ball around in midfield with his slippers on, you know? And, yeah. And, and he yeah. wasn't that player. And suddenly he just, okay, yeah, let's do it. And and then we see that pass to Badjo. We see what follows that we'll come on to talk about. But he he was born to do that. And and for Mazzoni to recognise it is is just next level coaching genius to me. Yeah, I guess it's like a sliding door moment, isn't it? Where, you know, you add Baggio at Brescia, Pirlo coming back to Brescia to kind of almost relearn his craft. And you had Mazzoni who is... He was clairvoyant enough to see the potential there. And then you had Pirlo, who had the confidence, you know, the legendary cool that we associate with Pirlo to actually go and do it, you know, to, to take control of that midfield at such a young age. And it's quite remarkable, really. Can I just add something there, actually? Um, I, I, I think Adam is still on the money about, like, that he was born to do it. And I, it was something that struck me when I was reading the autobiography, when he said that it was kind of like a throwaway line almost, but it kind of backs up Adam's point perfectly, that he said, some things I just knew how to do without ever having tried them, and I, I just you're just thinking he must have had such an, an innate understanding of it. And again, as Adam says, that he just this was his role, and then he came to define it, and it, it kind of backed it up. And I just thought it, it he did it, it, it maybe it, it was obvious or should have been obvious to everyone, but it wasn't. It was only Mattoni when he when he made made this call and pushed him back because Pirlo says stuff like this all the time that like um, the difference between me and the classic centre midfielder that uh, when they look forward, they see attackers. I see the spaces where I can put the ball, put the ball into for the attacker. And he talks about football being more like uh, 
what they say, geometry than tactics for him. That but just kind of, I think Adam is so on the money when he said that he sees the game differently, and he and he clearly did, and 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 that's why he became such a revelation, I think, in that role. Yeah, most definitely. I'm in complete agreement as well. Um, but anyway, after he finished up with Brescia, he made maybe a move that could foreshadow a later move he would make that we'll go into later, where he joined AC Milan. He crossed the Milan divide. And he ended up spending a trophy-laden decade there. He won two Serie A titles, a Coppa Italia, a Supercoppa Italiana, two Champions League titles, a Super Cup, and a Club World Cup. Um, so I just want to ask the both of you about that Milan team uh, and where it stands in the canon of Italian football and also how good was Pirlo at Milan and how important was he to that team. Two quotes I found that I liked from that period were from Carlo Ancelotti and Gattuso. Ancelotti said, uh, Pirlo spots a pass in a split second that lesser players spend a whole lifetime waiting to see, which kind of alludes to your earlier points about his vision and his uh, creativity. And then also Gattuso said, when I see Andrea Pirlo play, when I see the ball at his feet, I ask myself if I can really be considered a footballer. So if you could start with you, Mark, maybe, um, what's your memories of that Milan team and how important was Pirlo to that team? I I love the Gattuso quote there. I I hadn't heard that before, but it's entirely in keeping with his kind of character and his reverence of Pirlo. It it makes me think of the one where someone put it to him recently about that... uh, you know, Pirlo wouldn't have been able to do the job he did for Milan and Italy without his work. And uh, Gattuso kind of responded, going, "Let's not con- let's not confuse Nutella with shit here." You know, so <laughs> I kind of Gattuso is very, very humble, and obviously they're good, they're close friends, and and and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I like that. Um, at Milan, I, I I thought it was a wonderful team. Um, I think Adam is an even greater historian of Italian football than I was, so he'd be able to tell you better where it ranks in the pantheon of great of great teams, but. In, in Serie A history. I, I, I mean, I enjoyed watching them so much. I thought they were absolutely fantastic. I, and I think the thing that drew me most to Milan and uh, why I got such enjoyment out of watching was the midfield. I thought, God almighty, I, just, I thought it was such a perfect, perfectly balanced midfield. It had a bit of everything with Pirlo, Seydorf, Gattuso, and whether you had Rui Costa in front of them or, or Kaká afterwards. I just thought it, it was something for everyone in there. You had like, Pirlo's composure and his precise passing and his and his vision. Yeah, Sadoff, who was just like you know so well schooled in the Dutch football and um, academies at, at, at Ajax, and technically was just wonderful. Gattuso brought so much tenacity and passion and drive, and he could play as well, which a lot, you know a lot of people forget. You don't get that far without being able to play. And then you know Rui Costa was a phenomenal number ten, real old school, like um, and then he kind of eventually replaced by Kaká, who was just. I found one of my he was one of my favorite players at the time. The guy didn't run; he, he just seemed to glide across the grass and and pick out passes that you wouldn't believe. So I, I just thought it had a bit of everything, and um, know that there's there was a perception that maybe they should have won more uh, leagues, but they won two uh, two scudetti at the end of the day, and also two Champions Leagues under under Ancelotti. So I thought, I, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic team. I thought it was an incredible era actually for, for Milan in general. At a, at a time when Italian football was really really competitive as well, I thought. Um, and Pirlo was was in, in, integral to that. He, he played an absolutely massive part. Um, it, it was it, it proved an, a dreadful error on Inter's part to, to to let him go to one of their rivals. Um, and yeah, a, a very very significant transfer. And as you kind of alluded to earlier, it, the same history would kind of repeat itself when he left that Milan team for Juventus some years later because he was he was that influential. He 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 could have that control over the play, but also. 
have that influence over how how a team played and how successful they were. So I think we saw that. Yes, hundred percent. He was surrounded by some, some wonderful, wonderful midfielders, and they complemented each other incredibly well. But at the same time, Pirlo, yeah, was 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 a major, major uh, player. Uh, as as Adam said, he the guy that you know is the conductor of the orchestra, and uh, he made that Milan team sing. They, they were they were incredible. Yeah, most definitely. And for you, Adam, um, where does this Milan team land in the pantheon of Italian football and how important was Pirlo to the team? I think what Mark said about the the feeling that they're kind of underachieved when you think that they won two Scudetti and two Champions Leagues and, and got to a, a third Champions League final, which they obviously famously lost to Liverpool. Um, <laughs> I mean, you want, you want to talk about how good that team was. Watch that first half against Liverpool. They were absolutely unplayable. It was ridiculous. It, yeah, absolutely destroyed that Liverpool team, and then just came out and decided not to bother in the second half. But um, when you compare them to the the great teams of Italian football, I think you could probably find that their highs were higher than a, a lot of those teams. You can probably put together a, a compilation video that would put any of those other teams into into the into their shadow. You know, as Mark alluded to there, the the list of names that just roll off the tongue. Not they said off Pilo. Kakai, Zagi, Shevchenko, Maldini—it it just it's endless, isn't it? And and the way that they played was like that too. It's the whole team. Mark said about Kakai gliding across the turf. I think that whole team acted like it did at times, didn't it? It was it was <laughs> yeah. playing a, a different brand of football to everybody else. And the fact that they could—I I suppose if the criticism is they could only turn that on on big Champions League nights, then it's like saying that all that striker does is score goals when he's got thirty goals by the end of the season, isn't it? It's, they, yeah. they did everything you could ask. And yes, maybe every Sunday they could have turned out a little bit better, but their, their highs were so, so high. Their, their best was so, so good that on their on their day, they would probably have beaten pretty much any team ever. Um, I think week in, week out, there's teams like Mourinho's Inter, Lippi's Juve, whether it's the first edition or second, would probably beat them to the league title. And, and Juve's second team obviously did. Um, but... Yeah, that, that team was just fantastic. And I think one thing, not to be that guy again, but you like you, you look back on that team and it's like that midfield, Ancelotti just, whatever players the, the club signed for him, he just decided to cram as many of them as he could into his starting 11. <laughs> he, would, he would go into games with Shevchenko up front and then somehow manage to get Kakab, Rui Costa, Sedov, Pielo and Gattuso all in the same side and, and still win things, which... It's kind of bizarre when you think of how structured Italian football is, how tactically aware these teams are, how they try and and cover every possible angle. But a lot of that wouldn't have been possible without Pirlo. And I think you you look at his place in it and it's easy to sit here and nobody nobody listening to this podcast and certainly not you two guys need me to sit here and tell you how good Pirlo was at passing or how good he was at free kicks. But I think one one really overlooked part of Pirlo's game is his his defensive work. I mean, he's in that role in front of the defence, which, yeah, on on the surface and when we think of it, our memories of it, he's getting the ball from a teammate, he's looking up, he's playing it into the spaces, all that talk of geometry, of his vision and all of that. But you've got to be able to win it back first. And if your team has got Kaká and Rui Costa and Clarence Sedorf and fullbacks like um, Cafu and... Um, oh, who's the, the Brazilian left-back that they had a little bit? Uh, Silvino. 
and and they're bombing forward and everyone's going trying to score goals for set up goals for Inzaghi and Shevchenko. Somebody's got to do the day work, and it's really noticeable to me when you look back. And obviously, the statistics don't go all the way back to the beginning, but if you look back at 09-10 season, Gattuso averaged three tackles and half an interception a game. Pilo was averaging 2.2 tackles and 2.3 interceptions. And I get that's really yeah. rudimentary statistics and it, it really is simplifying things. But Pilo was getting stuck in and doing his job too there. He's he's winning the ball yeah. back nearly five times a game. And that that doesn't happen by accident, you know. And and yet he can use his vision to, to see what the other team are going to do and get those interceptions. But those those tackles don't happen by accident. And to to get to get close to what Gattuso was doing in, in tackles, he's he he is to to paraphrase Mark's quote from Gattuso, he's giving you the shit as well as the Nutella, I guess. <laughs> you know, and, and, and he really did. And there's a lot of, of a lot of Pilo highlights if you go back and watch. A lot of them start with him getting the ball under real intense pressure and turning away from it and making space for himself to make a pass. And I think those kind of of facets to his game really allowed that Milan team to sing in the way that it did because it's it's easy to to see the highlights of of Kaká flying past people and Fu putting crosses in and and Inzaghi scoring and and Shevchenko scoring and all Pilo's free kicks and and stuff. But it, it it really does come back to well, how did they get the ball in the first place? And they got it because Gattuso helped by Pilo and then obviously Paolo Maldini is no slouch either. But there's there's plenty of guys in that team to win it back and Pilo was a huge part of that. And I think that really is a an underappreciated facet of his game that that really does get overlooked. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that two things from what you mentioned there, I think that for me anyway, I remember growing up being, I think it was 10 in 2005, I remember being on holiday in Italy with my family in um, Lake Garda and going, we drove to the San Siro, I remember buying the that Milan kit with uh, Hernan Crespo on the back and I remember being in the San Siro and just being blown away because that team was a team that really made me kind of fall in love with European football. Do you know, like I didn't have the, you know the uh, the the football Italia, the uh, James Richardson experience. But it was like a second wave, and I think that maybe I don't you know more than me, Adam, especially. But maybe in the history of Italian football, they're possibly the most glamorous team, the most aristocratic team in terms of the creativity they had and the way they played the game. Yeah, I think you you definitely have to say that. And I think I think San Siro plays a massive part in that too, doesn't it? I think. You talk about those Juve teams, and they were quite. I, I'm obviously a massive Juve fan. Make no mistake about it. But they're they're, they're a very industrious team, a really hard working team. Even their their better players kind of fall into that mold throughout history. And and then obviously playing at the Dele Alpi before, playing at the new stadium now, it doesn't. It's never quite had that magic that San Siro does, especially on Champions League nights. But but when San Siro is full, whether it's it's Milan or Inter, I think. But particularly when it's Milan, I think there's just something so so special about that, and so captivating. Really, it's, it's sometimes lazy to to call it the, the cathedral of Italian football, but if you see it full and you hear that noise and you you look at the cover sud in full voice, it it just is, isn't it? You know, it's it's there's something truly truly special about that place when it's full and when Milan are at their best and. I think that is a, a not to get sidetracked too much, but I think that's a massive reason why Italian football's fallen behind a little bit is because Milan are just not there. I think Italian football loses something when it doesn't have a great Milan team. I think it's the same when it's not a great Juve team too. But I think with Milan being being so far away from their best until 
well, for quite some time now, I think it, it, it really has been to Italian football's detriment. It, it really is lacking that that spark of, of seeing San Siro full in red and black and, and seeing a great Milan team knock the ball around the way that only they can. Yeah, yeah. And I think also, regarding the point you made about Pirlo, I think it's very easy to oversimplify his narrative and kind of paint him as just a purely creative player, you know, kind of almost like aristocratic player, but and negate the more defensive, more tactic, tactical contributions he makes to the game, you know. But yeah, but then moving on to his career for Italy, um, I know it's difficult because we saw about Juventus too, um, but just to segue briefly into his international career, um, he was obviously very successful with his country. He made 116 appearances across 13 years. As we mentioned earlier, he won the under-21 European Championships until in the year 2000. And uh, he captains his country to a bronze medal in the 2004 Olympics. Uh, he won the 2006 World Cup and he reached the final of Euro 2012. Um, I found a really good quote from Cesario Prandelli. I normally don't put in so many quotes, but with Pirlo, there seems to be loads of them. Prandelli says, Andrea Pirlo belongs to protect the category. He's a footballer for everyone. Every stadium is his stadium. The fans watch him and they see a universal champion, capable of transcending the concept of support for only one club. So starting with you, Mark, I just wanted to ask you how you'd categorize his international career, um, how important he was to the World Cup in 2006 and also the Euro 2012 run. Um, for me, the defining image of Pirlo in an shirt is undoubtedly the Penenka against Joe Hart in 2012. Um, but what's your, what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I, it's probably the the abiding memory for a lot of people. And it was interesting. I suppose it tells you a lot about his character as well, that he kind of, he said he wasn't, there was nothing, wasn't an exhibitionism or he wasn't trying to show off in any way when he, when he took that penalty. He said that at that moment, it was pure calculation. And he thought that taking a penalty in that way, Kim Hart was jumping around trying to put him off, this kind of stuff was... He thought this was the way of reducing the risk to the, to the absolute minimum. Again, he was. He said he. This is how he thinks about football. It wasn't like he back in was it the year two thousand saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a panenka on the on the keeper. I'm gonna do a cookie aisle. Like I'm gone. It was. It was a last last second uh, calculation. It was something that he he uh, evaluated the situation and then he decided what to do what do what he thought felt was best. So. Uh, I think it kind of says a lot about his character and the way he played the game, that he was all constantly evaluating and, and weighing up his options in this kind of, very, yeah, almost mechanical way. Um, in career in general, at the international level, yeah, it can't be anything other than an incredible success. I think even in, in, in year 2006, obviously, it was a triumph for the, the collective and the squad was clearly unified um, in very difficult circumstances, given what was going on around Calciopoli at the time. And it brought guys from various different clubs together and, and united in kind of one goal, which was becoming uh, world champions. And uh, again, Pirlo was, 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 was key in that regard. And one of my favourite memories of Pirlo's career is the pass in for uh, Grosso in the 2006 semi-final. You know, when, you know, you see so many people doing these kind of no-look or fake passes these days and they're, and they're kind of utterly pointless. They do them like on the halfway line when there's nobody around them and that kind of thing. And that was Pirlo waiting, waiting, waiting until the exact moment to reach the pass and, you know, kind of feigning which, which direction would he go and then he just slips the ball into Grosso and what follows next obviously is, is more memorable because of the kind of Tardelli-esque celebration and, and the, you know, the significance of the goal which was a, an unbelievable finish as well but, you know, I always remember Pirlo's pass and then, he you know, he scored the penalty in the 
and he scored the first penalty, I think, in the shootout, which again, he makes a big deal of. In the, in, I remember in his book, he was saying, um, Lippy came up to him straight away and said, uh, you go first. And Pirlo just, you know, took it as a, okay, to, to show faith in me. And he, he, he talks about how, you know, the pressure and all that kind of stuff. But then you're talking about quotes earlier. I love the one where he just said, I, I never felt pressure. I, on the, the afternoon of that final, um, I played PlayStation and then I slept. And then I went out and won the World Cup final. That's like, it's it's an incredible attitude towards the game and and games of that are normally that you can actually, you know, maintain this level of concentration and focus in in extreme circumstances. And and I think that that showed throughout his his career and and from 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 2006 all the way up to the the penalty you mentioned against Hart. And I think I I, I really comes across with Pirlo is that how much he loves playing for Italy. And I, I know in you know, for certain fans, and it's not just in Italy, in other places, like your club comes first before the country. And Pirlo has, has regularly said uh, the national team comes before any club, it comes before Juventus, it comes before Milan, it comes before Inter. And again, he, like he amuses you with the stuff that they come Like he loves being part of a, of a national team. He loves being part of the squad. He, he joked that it was it was often better than sex because it lasted longer. And if you're impotent, it's not only your fault, that kind of thing. And he, I remember when he, he did the famous one about Cassano, when he said that um, Cassano talks about, you know, having slept with 700 women, but at a certain point, the Italy boss stopped calling them. So is he really happy deep down in life? And you're just like, it, I, I can kind of just, again, it, it, that wonderful wit that Pirlo doesn't always show, you know, he can come across as quite... I don't know, taciturn or you know, monosyllabic in, in certain interviews, but he, he clearly has a very, very, yeah, great wit and a great way of looking at the world. But it also just hammers home how much he cared about playing for Italy. And we know he was a, he was a wind-up merchant, and he has all these wonderful stories about Mentin poor Gattuso and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it comes across that every time he speaks and every time he, he talks about it and everything he's written about it is that he loves playing for Italy. So to have guys like that in the squad, and you mentioned Prandelli, and he has so much time for Pirlo because. Having guys like that, like Pirlo and Buffon, and it just immediately, I think, conveyed to everybody that comes into the squad go, what it's about and what's expected of you at that level. And I think those guys uh, with that attitude, who are obviously have enormous quality in, in terms of ability, in terms of love and their passion for the country, and, 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 and Pirlo talking about, you know, when he scored his penalty against Germany or against France, sorry, in the final. And he's saying, you know, I understood at that moment how, how, how beautiful it was to be Italian. You know, that kind of stuff is just, it feeds into this, you know, the fans obviously love it. And it shows, I think, as well, that how much it meant to him. And I think uh, that's probably something maybe we forget, as, as, as we've, we've alluded to. And Adam pointed out about his work rate gets overlooked. I think maybe his passion and his, and his desire and his drive is, we just think of him as effortlessly cool, you know. Um, mm. And I think that's something that... I think really, really, really came across during his international career uh, that he rarely skipped games. He rarely, you know, you know, pulled out matches because he always, always, always wanted to wear uh, the blue of Italy and he, he always wanted to represent his country. So I think that's that's something that, yeah, yeah, really, really struck me in terms of Pirlo discussing his, his career. Yeah, and forgive my pronunciation because my brain is in Spanish, but <laughs> Marcello Lippi said that Pirlo is a silent leader. He speaks with his feet. I think that really kind of... yeah. Talking two important things that he is a silent character outwardly, but he is also a leader. And um, right. I guess the fact that he's re- represented, you know, the big three in Italy, um, it kind of almost lends the fact that he's associated not just with one club, but with the country. Yeah. Like he's, and also even his personality is very Italian. It's kind of quintessentially Italian, yeah. you know. 
Um, but for you, Adam, what do you think about his international career? Yeah, you can't think of it as anything other than a, a unqualified success, can you? It's, it's, it was ridiculously good for Italy from from almost start to finish. He, he was he was man of the match for Italy in about four games at the 2006 World Cup, I think, and deserved every one of them, including the final. Um, I I do I do laugh when I hear that quote though about him uh, not giving a toss about pressure because if you if you ever go back and watch the penalty shootout um, from 2006, he takes the first penalty, which kind of like the one against Johar, he puts it right down the middle against Bartas. Um, he doesn't he doesn't chip it like he does to Joe Hart, but it's right down the middle. And then he spends the rest of the shootout hiding behind Fabio Cannavaro, only coming <laughs> yeah. out to celebrate when the Italy penalties go in. He, yeah. he doesn't watch any penalty after his own. He's just <laughs> he's just standing there hiding behind Fabio Cannavaro. So uh, you do have to call a bit of bullshit on his, uh, I don't give a toss about pressure line because he, he definitely, definitely did. And I think outside of the 2006 World Cup, he was, he was always excellent for Italy. Um, he he was great at the the Euros after that, and and that Italy team at the two thousand eight Euros is really underappreciated. I think they lost to pen, on penalties to Spain in the quarterfinals with Roberto Donadoni as manager, and Gattuso and Pirlo were both suspended for that game. And I think they were, Italy looked great before that, and and Pirlo had scored a goal as well, and he, he was playing well, and he, unfortunately he picked up a yellow card and got suspended for the, the game with Spain. And, and that could have been a very different story for, for not just Italy, but for Spain as well, couldn't it? You know, if they if they don't win that game, then obviously they won't go on to win that tournament, and then the World Cup that followed it too. It, it could be really different. I think one of one of Pirlo's best tournaments for Italy was probably the, the 2009 Confederations Cup as well. He was, he was superb in that, and he played... In that tournament, he played a little bit off to the side um, rather than in just in the middle. He played more to the left of midfield, which is something that he was going to do even more notably later on, a, a year later for Milan with Allegri. But um, quite a few times in that um, in that tournament, he was running at defenders and beating them like he used to do when he was a number 10. There's a the game against USA. I remember he he gets the ball on the left touch line. He spins past the midfielder and then lays waste to the fullback before putting a cross in for Giuseppe Rossi. And I think seeing Giuseppe Rossi score was always good fun. But but watching Pilo dance past two defenders and leave a fullback trailing in his wake is is a memory that that not many people probably have of Pilo and something that we kind of forget in our in our memories of him. But he was always fully capable of that and. He took to that different role with with Prandelli, who, as you both said, absolutely loved Pirlo. He he took to that that role just as well as he took to to playing as a regista, and it was it was kind of understandable why Allegri wanted to move him at Milan. Obviously, Pirlo didn't seem to appreciate it, and and we can talk about that. But he 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 did it for Italy, and he never complained, and he was very very good at it. So I can kind of understand where Allegri was coming from, even if it did ultimately lead to lead to Pirlo leaving, but. Yeah, for Italy, Pirlo was always fantastic. And I think what, what you said there about um, him playing for Juve, Milan and Inter, meaning he became more of a an Italian hero. I think that brings us back to, to Roberto Baggio, doesn't it? Who did the same, played for Juve, played for Milan, played for Inter. You, you think of Baggio more as a, probably as a Brescia player, speaking for me, than a, a, any of those clubs maybe. But he, he's definitely more of a, an Italian hero than being tied to any one of the big clubs. And I think that's definitely true for Pirlo as well, really. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. Um, you spoke about his move to Juve. Of course, that's of huge importance for both 
his playing career, but also the way his career has gone after playing as well in a managerial sense. Um, he left Milan uh, when Allegri wanted to pr- proceed with a kind of more defensive player to sit in front of the back four. I think it was Mark van Bommel was the guy he wanted to take that place. And uh, he went to Juventus on a free transfer, spent four years there, uh, won four Serie A titles, a Coppa Italia, and two Super Coppa Italianas. Um, how good was Pirlo at Juve? And how refreshing was it to see him have kind of a mini revival of sorts? Do you think that he relished um, proving the doubters wrong, that he wasn't done, and that he still had more on the tank? Um, and also, how important was he to Juventus's development? Because... Like Juventus now are the all-conquering, you know, club going for 10 in a row. But back then, they were a different proposition, weren't they? Can we start with you, Adam, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. I think to, to keep in with the, the tone that we've set so far, I think if I start with a quote from Buffon, Buffon said that when Andreas told me he was joining Juve, the first thing I thought is God is real. and and really we can all go overboard about Pirlo we can spend the whole time doing it but Allegri Allegri shifted him to the left like you say to make room for Mark van Bommel in front of the defence he won the Scudetto doing that so it's it's hard to argue with the result I guess if the aim is to win and and I guess that's the difference between Allegri and and Carlo Ancelotti is Allegri figured out what it would take to, to win every Sunday and, and did that rather than trying to do it in the Champions League. And it worked, but it, it clearly upset Pirlo. Pirlo got a, got a, famously got a golden pen from Milan for being there for 10 years. And he, he wrote in his autobiography that he told Adriano Galliani that he'd used it to sign his first Juve contract. <laughs> so, how true that is, I don't know, but it's a good storyline, isn't it? With a lot like a lot of things with Pirlo, but he, he came to Juve and Juve had finished seventh the two seasons in a row before that. And obviously lots of things changed that summer for Juve. They they brought Antonio Conte in as manager. They moved to Juventus Stadium. They most notably, apart from Pirlo, they signed Stefan Licksteiner, which meant for the first time since Lillian Turam left, they actually had a right back, which really made a big difference to the team. But but nobody more than Pirlo made a difference. You know, Arturo Vidal was great, sure. Conte made a big difference as coach. Bonucci, Batsali, Chiellini, obviously. But but having Pirlo just week in, week out made the difference for Juve. And when, when Conte kind of stumbled into playing 3-5-2 because he didn't have any wingers to make 4-3-3 work, it, it, it was the making of him as a coach. And it, it gave us, because he was trying to play 4-4-2 before that, just and with Pirlo in with either Vidal or Marquisio. But then with 3-5-2, uh, he could play all three, putting Pirlo back in his, his natural role as regista. And it gave us back the Pirlo that we we all fell in love with in that Milan team, didn't it? And he was in he was sensational for Juve right from the off. He he put an, a, an assist to Stefan Ligsteiner for the first goal at Juventus Stadium, which was kind of reminiscent of that one that that Mark touched on for the for Grosso. He he wasn't really looking, clipped it up this one over the top of the defense rather than through it. But it was still that vision, that awareness to spot the run of a fullback. To, to pick him out and to give him a, an easy goal for Licksteiner to, to become the first goal scorer at that stadium. And he was so, so important to Juve throughout that entire season, pulling the strings the whole time, as you would expect from Pirlo. And it, it really was, it was quintessential Pirlo. I think the, the only the only thing that's jarring when you, when you look back on that now, if you look back on clips of that first Pirlo season at Juve, he still didn't have a beard. And I, I'm not quite <laughs> sure that even I remembered that. He's clean-shaven, fresh-faced Pirlo still. And 
the beard came in the second season. He suddenly appeared for preseason training with a full beard. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably the only thing that doesn't fit with the image that we all have of Pirlo. Is he was clean shaven in that first season, but he was he was superb. He was scoring goals. He was making passes. He he was so so vital to Juve, and the team was built around him until he left. And I, I don't think you can really say more than that. Yeah, I feel like Claudio Marchisio complimented him well too midfield, didn't he? Because Marchisio was such kind of a a hard runner and kind of very physically mobile player. He kind of complimented well with Pirlo in the more central position. No? Um, but for you, Mark, what do you think about uh, Pirlo at Juve? Yeah, I, I think uh, Adam has covered it very well there. I can only support what he's saying in terms of... And then you, you're bringing them up the midfield. I mean, we were talking about the Milan midfield about uh, you know five or ten minutes ago. The Juve midfield as well uh, during that era, you know, with, with Pirlo uh, and emerging Pogba after a couple of years, Vidal... Uh, Marquisio, as you mentioned as well, like it, it was, it was incredible, and and again, players that complemented each other, and as you alluded to, you know, guys that were doing maybe the jobs that he wasn't uh, probably capable of anymore, but that just left him to kind of focus on, on dictating the play and controlling things, and and using that extraordinary, you know, vision and and uh, range of passing that he had. He, he was so so influential, and he, he was a joy to watch, and I think you know we we've touched on it as well that he. You know, because he played for you know uh, the three big clubs and, and and was such a success at Italy, he was a favourite of the neutrals as well. So I think everybody kind of enjoyed this the renaissance that he had. And there's no doubt, touched on it as well that he was driven by the uh, the desire to prove that he could still he could still uh, perform and and at, at the very highest level and he could still be an integral part of a team. I think, uh, as you said, Allegri's decision, you know, he was pushing him out towards the left was vindicated by that by that, by that league title and Milan, you know, were probably right to do what they did and they only offered him as far as Pirlo as, as far as Pirlo's book goes, they only offered him a twelve month deal because he was over thirty at that stage and you know, Juve offered him three years and, and again no, that was a master stroke. I I genuinely think it's um I may disagree and uh, but I, I, I think it's one of the most significant transfers in, in Serie A history because of 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 the because of the role he played in transforming a team, as Adam said, that had finished seventh in consecutive seasons into champions inside 12 months, and then the foundations that it laid in terms of obviously Juve managed this situation brilliantly and they were coached very well and there was there were several other factors, you know, the formation of the BBC and all that kind of stuff and other great signings like Nick Steiner, Vidal, all this type of stuff. And they, they continued to do that with their free transfers with Marotta and, and, um, and you know, even great gambles like Tevez, all this and the, 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 the infrastructure there, the stadium, the new stadium. So Juventus managed the situation absolutely phenomenally well. But I do you think Pirlo was was was, it, was the key transfer? And when you consider that, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was like Serie A player of the year three, three years in a row after he'd arrived there. So, I mean, that's how it just goes to show you how influential he was. As, as Adam says, the, the team was constructed around his skill set. And uh, he delivered spectacularly. If, if they hadn't run into... A star-studded uh, Barcelona attack in 2015, they would have got the Champions League that they arguably deserved. So um, it was a, it was a phenomenal team, and, I, and that's why I think it's so significant. And now, you know, ten years on or whatever, nine years on, we're we're looking at a Juventus team that's going for t- for for tenth consecutive Scudetto. So I, I, a lot of it goes back to yes, there were other factors, Conte, Marotta, all these kind of things, but Pirlo transfer in terms of a a, a shift in the in the landscape in the, in, in in Serie A and in, in Italian football absolutely seismic in terms of that he's he's coming away from a team that won the title and he goes immediately to Juve 
not only wins the title, but ushers in an era of, of sustained success, unprecedented, the kind of the likes of which we've never seen before. So I think it's a testament to, to his influence and, yeah, just, just how important uh, a player he is in, in, in the history of Italian football. Yeah, I think there's not many footballers in the history of football who can actually legitimately claim to have been a cornerstone of two era-defining teams yeah. Two different clubs, you know, with that great Milan team in the 2000s and then the great Juve team in the early 2010s. Like, it's quite remarkable, really. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I think to, to echo what Mark is saying, he's absolutely right. Pirlo was Serie A Player of the Year in 2012, 13 and 14. And when, we, when you look back at, at talking about the, the seismic transfer, Milan won the title in, in uh, 2010, 2011, and then obviously Pilo went to Juve. The rest of the Milan team pretty much stayed the same with Zlatan still being there, Thiago Silva, they stayed another season. That Milan team with Allegri was pretty much intact in 2011-12. Juve had this brand new team, this uh, new coach in Antonio Conte, the new stadium, all of those players that we've all mentioned in, in, in the last few moments. But the, Juve went undefeated and only beat Milan to the title by four points. You, you know, and... The, they were, they were very fortunate in the head-to-head games against Milan. But if you take Pilo away from that Juve team and give him back to Milan, are you telling me that's not worth five points? You know, if if that's the Serie A player of the year, then, then okay, maybe Juve don't win that title because Allegri's team with, with Allegri, with Zlatan, with Thiago Silva, with Pilo still, they've got all the experience. And when it comes down to that, those final moments, those last two games where you've got to go and win the league, they would have the edge then for me. And then, where does that leave this? Yes, this Juve team is the team of the era, the team of the ages. That's nine titles in a row. But does that even get underway without Pirlo coming? You know, it's it, to me that's even more than the the transfer going from Inter to Milan and kickstarting that that Milan team that went on to to win those Champions League titles that we've discussed. It's far more significant than that to to leave the Milan in the season that they'd won the title to go to Juve and help them win the title by four points with that your old team otherwise intact as the only rival to that team. And then that that Milan team broke up and Zlatan and, and Thiago Silva both went to PSG and Allegri got fired and all of that. But And Juve went on to win the next two titles by nine points and 17 points. And, and it, from there, it was just a cakewalk and, and has remained that way until now, hasn't it? But but yeah, for me, without Pilo, that, that change, that shift, that uh, passing of the torch, whatever cliche you want to use, it, it, it doesn't happen without that PLO transfer. It, it totally changed the course of history. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, I guess it was another slaving doors moment, wasn't it? You know, it's quite remarkable, really. Yeah. Um, but then obviously, we also mentioned earlier the kind of, you know, you mentioned Adam countering the image that he doesn't care. Like he's a cool character for sure, but he does care because if you remember in 2015 when they lost that game in Berlin to that great Barcelona team, the image of him in tears. Remember, it was quite a visceral kind of image, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then after that, he left Juve for the MLS and New York City FC. Um, and I think, I thought back then that when he left, that it would be the last we'd see of him in European football. I didn't think he'd come back to be a coach or to be a manager. Um, I, I could see him doing something else with his life and career. Um, so that kind of ties neatly into this new era of his Life, Andre Perlo. Um, and I just want to touch on another quote, the final quote of the day for me. Uh, it's from his book, I Think Therefore I Play. 
about the warm up, the famous warm up quote. He says, <laughs> it actually disgusts me, the warm up. It's nothing but masturbation for conditioning coaches. I need to do something during them to avoid getting depressed. If you've got Bar Raffaele, Israeli supermodel, lying naked in front of you, you can't just wink at her and say, wait there, I'll be with you in 15 minutes. It's exactly the same when you're about to play Real Madrid, Barcelona, or any other superpower. So that doesn't sound like, you know, this new era of hyper-attentive coaches like Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp. So can you explain um, first you, Adam, um, how did Pirlo get to, you know, going to retire in the MLS, to coming back to Italy and becoming a coach? I think... I think this is where we have to really separate the the image of Pirlo from the the reality of Pirlo. I think yeah. that we can pull we can pull quote and we have haven't we? Let's be honest. We can pull quotes about Pirlo that make him out to be some kind of cross between I don't know Chuck Norris and and whoever else you want to throw in there as a cliche. <laughs> and all we we've got it all, haven't we? You know he's. He, he, he's not worried by pressure. He thinks that the warm-up is masturbation for coaches, all of that. But when it comes down to it, he's the guy hiding behind Fabio Cannavaro. And, and he's the guy who was hired, um, I've totally forgotten the guy's name, the fitness coach that was at Juve with Antonio Conte. He's, he's brought him back as the fitness coach. Um, and he's a real drill sergeant, old school sergeant major type, you know, who's going to make these guys run up and down the steps at the training ground forever. So he, he might say that he doesn't care. He might say that he's not interested in it. But I think that the reality is that he really is. And he's he's not leaving any stone unturned as a coach. I think what we've seen from Pirlo in, in taking this time away and going to MLS and in living in New York, where... Yeah, okay, once or, once or twice a week he might get spotted by a, an Italian-American Juve fan or Milan fan and have to pose for a picture. But the, the pressure of living in New York, the way that he can just blend in and, and disappear has, has really allowed him to, to chill out and, and mature. And he's come back to Juve as 40, uh, 41 years old. Uh, what are we, six years since he left, five years since he left? He's a, he's a very different man than he was when he left. He's a lot more mature, a lot more... Um, worldly wise he's been out of the cocoon of Italian football and and Marco knows as well as I do that when you when you live in it every single day you see people doing the most crazy crazy things because that's the way they've always been done and and Pirlo's gone away and gotten away from that and seen a, a different way of of approaching not just football but life in general as well because Italian life's very structured very um buried in its routines and I think being a, a a foreigner who can disappear into the uh animosity of New York is has really helped um turn him into a very different character and I think that's we've started to see that already he's he also said in the same book that he'd never become a coach it's not a job that appeals to him and yet here we are he's he was going to start on a career as the Juve under-23s coach so he was clearly going to be in it for the long haul wasn't he he was clearly going to to go and put in the work and, and do all the, the difficult parts necessary to, to have a long and successful coaching career. Yes, he's got a massive advantage and a massive kickstart on that by now being the, the Juve first team head coach. But he was clearly going to go down the same route as as Pep Guardiola at Barcelona, as as Zidane at, at Real Madrid, and, and go and do the difficult part of coaching the second team in a lower league and, and really be a, a, a real coach. And and now he's going to have that cult of celebrity that he had before because he's the Juventus coach and he's a rookie and he's completely untested. But he's he's clearly altered his view of 
warm-ups and coaching in general, I guess, is the, the biggest takeaway for me. And and I think the, the, the biggest thing for me is that he's going to take the lessons of all those coaches that he's had, the successes and their failures, and 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 mould them into his own philosophy. And I think you look at who he's played for and who he's been coached by, and I think you can only have hope that he can bring that to fruition because he's he's clearly such a, a gifted guy and a, a, an intelligent guy who sees the game in a as we've alluded to already, in a different way to everybody else. And and I think that bringing that view that he's he's gathered from Brescia, Juve, Milan, Inter, Italy, and New York as well, I think that's a really important part of his, his career and his life to go there. And, and probably the biggest takeaway from his New York days is, is not just that the change in lifestyle, but the, the fact that he was suddenly playing with players. I mean, I, I don't know about you two, but I watched those first few games of PLO when he went to New York just to see what it was like. And he was playing a different game to everybody else. He he said about, uh, I can't remember who we who we quoted earlier, saying that PLO could see passes that others only dream of. I think it was Ancelotti. And and you could tell that, that nobody else on the New York City FC team could even have dreamt of those passes because PLO was passing it into the spaces that he talked about and and nobody else even saw the space, never mind the pass. And he, he was just throwing it into spaces that nobody else could see and nobody was running for it. And he really did get frustrated in that first season. You could see it every time he played. He was totally on a different wavelength to the rest of the team. And he adjusted to that and he changed the way that he played a little bit. But I think being able to to understand what it was like to not think like he does was there for the first time because obviously you play with Kaká, Seydorf, Rui Costa, Marquisio, Tevez, all of those guys, you're operating on the same plane, aren't you? But you go to MLS and you're, you're playing with a guy who's earning minimum wage in MLS and, and you look at the standard of MLS, particularly then five years ago, and and it's helped PLO to understand that not everyone sees the game the way that he does and that has to be a real help to him as a coach, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, he released his thesis, well, released his thesis recently um, for his pro licence and it was quite an interesting read. And he kind of talks about being, you know, very hungry and dominating the football. And when you don't have the football, winning it back, you know, touching again what you said earlier, Adam. Um, and also he mentioned his reference points uh, regarding his coaching style. He mentioned Guardiola and Cruyff's Barcelona, respective Barcelona's, uh, Ancelotti's Milan, um, Conte's Juve. And I think it was... Lippi's Italy, maybe? Lippi's Italy, yeah. That was it, that was it, that was it. So for you, Mark, what do you think about um, his thesis, his cited influences, and also, as Adam touched on, how would, how, how did he transition into becoming this coach in waiting, basically? Yeah, I, I think Adam's made a, a couple of really interesting points there about the, you know, separating the, the mythology around Pirlo and this, this, this image that he, he clearly has cultivated and he clearly does pay, play up to, you know, with the shots in the vineyard and this kind of thing. As, as you mentioned earlier, he, he's kind of come, become the stereotypical, sophisticated Italian man with the, and as Adam brought up the beard and, and that kind of stuff. So he, he clearly played up to that. And as, as we mentioned earlier, Adam pointed out he was, he was hiding behind, you know, players while, while watching the penalty shootout. And, you know, in the same chapter in which he talks about, that he didn't feel pressure at the World Cup. He also, you know, it goes on for about four or five paragraphs of, of how much of a torment it was uh, to take the penalty, you know, in the shootout and how, how he was thinking, of, you know, all these different thoughts that were running through his head and then what was his, his thought process and all this. Stuff. So, it, yeah, there is a bit of some, of the, some of the stuff you definitely have to take with a pinch of salt. And I think that definitely um, 
it ties in with the with the, the stuff that he said about training and you know most players don't like the, you know training and warm up and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, it's 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 a more boring part of the game. It really is all about the matches and the the excitement and playing in front of crowds and that kind of stuff. That's what you live and you play for. So I am. Um, and as, as as Adam pointed out as well, he, you know, he's the man in his forties now. He's, he's definitely matured and he's, he's definitely grown up. And he, I think as well, it was interesting to hear a lot of ex players. Obviously, the, the you know teammates um, coming out in support of him. Obviously, they would because he's a, he's a very popular guy. But I, you know, it, it's not a surprise to hear you know guys like Rui Costa and and, and Diamante of Italy, you know, talking about that they knew that he was going to be a coach just because of the way he talked about the game, just the way he uh, he viewed the game. Um, that it was always obvious to them that this was someone who you know who thinks deeply about the about the sport, uh, about tactics and that kind of stuff. And you know, even the fact that he called the autobiography, I, I, I think, therefore, I, I play. You know, it just says it all. about we're talking, he's definitely trying to, he's definitely someone who is trying to portray himself as a deep thinker, but obviously is is someone who has a very interesting take on football in general. So. To me, it's not that much, you know, not that much of a surprise. I know these quotes have been brought out that, yeah, he he wasn't interested in in being a coach at all. But he, ultimately, it's not a surprise given the, the kind of player he was as well. And the personality side of things is interesting for me because even when he was he was appearing on Sky Sport Italia over here as a pundit and stuff, he wasn't someone like who. When when Pirlo spoke in the past about Conte, when he he says when Conte speaks like the, his words assault you. Pirlo doesn't strike me as that kind of character, and he just, certainly doesn't come across that way. Then you have, you know, people like uh, Paolo Montero back in the day would say, "But whenever Pirlo spoke, you know, the dressing room would go quiet and everyone would listen." So he does command respect. He does have this personality, and and Adam and and, and Adam and yourself have mentioned Guardiola and and Zidane. He definitely has that, you know, status that immediately commands respect. Of uh, respect, I imagine even of, of guys like Cristiano Ronaldo would go. You know, this guy's a living legend. You know, this guy's on you know on the same level as me. Well, maybe Ronaldo doesn't see anyone on the same level as him. But you know what I mean? That even amongst in a dressing room full of stars, you can imagine Pirlo walking in and immediately commanding more respect than unfortunately Maurizio Sarri did last year when there was there was issues. So I think that's going to stand him in good stead. I think it's an excellent point about being introduced to playing with players of a less yeah of less quality or didn't have the same vision as him in New York because. That is one that comes up over and over again. Every time we see a great player trying to become a coach, uh, some of them struggle with the fact that they're they're working with people who no longer are able to do what they were able to do with a football or even understand what they're trying to do with a football. So I think that is an important aspect of it If, if you, for, for any coach. Uh, I think there's a big difference in terms of Zidane and Guardiola in that you know Zidane was groomed for that position at Real Madrid essentially. Because he was Ancelotti's right uh, right hand man, he worked in the in the B team. I think Guardiola did a year at the Barcelona B before he took over. I think these are big big differences. That's the most fascinating aspect for me. Yes, yes, his team. Pirlo had a week. What's that? Pirlo had a week. Which is just staggering, I, and and it just it, 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 that that's that's what's really blown me away is that Juve have not that they've brought him back in per se, but. I think it's a bit much to, you know, people are using the defence, oh, it could be like Zidane, it could be like Guardiola, and he could. The guys, you know, clearly we're talking about one of the most intelligent playmakers we've ever seen, you know. Um, it's, it's definitely not on the same level as those two, and that's what that's, that's why I'm really interested. You mentioned the thesis, which is, you know, it's full of very, 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 you know, I think uh, Renzo uh, Olivieri described them as avant-garde, you know, very modern ideas, and, and he's definitely got a lot of 
interesting concepts which we've seen so far in terms of movement and defenders and, and changing positions. You know, he's kind of saying it's not so much about formations, it's more about, you know, uh, the functionality and what the, what the player, his role and his position and, 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 and moving as one, this kind of stuff. So it is, it is, it's a fascinating appointment. I, I find it such a, such a gamble in terms of it's, it's a rookie coach. As Adam says, he had a week, uh, the under twenty three role would have made much much more sense, and then it would have been more comparable to Guardiola or, or Zidane in that sense. But to just throw him in at the deep end, yes, with a with a title winning squad, is uh, is is a hell of a move for for Juve, and he has he will have a lot of support as the neutrals because he's just a, such a popular guy. But it's 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 going to be tough for him, and it's going to be really really interesting to see Juve this season and and how his play and his game and strategy evolves and how he copes with the pressure. You might say that he doesn't feel pressure, but he's gonna he's gonna be subjected to a lot this season. Definitely, and that leads nicely into my final question. Um, I saw a picture the other day of Ronaldo, uh, Pirlo, Pavel Medved, and Andrea Agnelli uh, walking together uh, in the training ground, having conversation, and it just fit with my image, my perception of Juve in a way that uh, Maurizio Sarri never did. To be honest, you know. Um, so I just want to know what you think about what situation Pirlo is walking into at Juventus and he's obviously fitted to the club in a stylistic point of view and in a kind of image point of view uh, but do you think that he has what it takes to be able to uh, turn them into a Champions League winning club because that's essentially their ambition isn't it you know like they've beaten Sampdoria 3-0 the opening day and they drew 2-2 with Roma in Rome last Sunday evening um, so I just want to ask you, and it's kind of difficult because it's kind of conjecture at this point, but for you, Adam, what's your opinion on what changes he's made so far and the kind of changes he can make that will turn Juve into a European Cup winning team? I think that the comment you made about the picture of Pilo with uh, Agnelli, Nedved and Ronaldo encapsulating Juve's image, I think that was a real problem for Maurizio Sarri. I think... The, the fact that this was the guy who was the coach of Napoli who stuck two fingers up at Juve fans when he was on the Napoli team bus coming into Juventus Stadium because they were banging on the windows and and and, and really criticised Juve in the past and, and complained about Juve all the time, which is, as the Napoli coach, hey, that's his job, right? Make no mistake. That's not, he doesn't have that opinion of Juve. That's his job, fine. But he came to Juve and he never fit in with Juve at all. I mean, you see the guy on the sideline with his cigarette butt between his teeth as he's chewing on it and wearing trainers like your granddad would wear if he, if he <laughs> bought his own trainers, you know, these big white clunky things, even though Juve are sponsored by Adidas. And, and then you see Pirlo, we've spoke about the beard, the suit, the, the image, this the, the vineyard photos that Mark touched on before, all of that. It's just Juve's image is Pirlo's image. It's the same, isn't it? Especially the way that they're trying to go right now, and I think, I think what we've seen, what we have seen in the first two games, is a Juve team who are really glad that Maurizio Sarri has gone. I think if you look back to Allegri's first season at Juve, Antonio Conte was a very good coach for Juve, totally transformed the club, absolutely. But I think after that third season, when he left, I think a lot of the players were sick of him too because he is utterly relentless. In uh, in Italy, a lot of the time, he has the nickname of the hammer um, because he's constantly 
going on and on and on at his players. If you watch an Inter game at any point this season, he's he's demanding every pass goes the way that he wants. Players to move three inches this way, six feet that way, whatever it may be. He's he's just relentlessly barking instructions from the touchline. And Allegri came and he went, it's fine, just go play. And immediately the team was transformed. They were hammering Palmer 7-0 and, and totally destroying teams on their way to the Champions League final in that first year with Allegri. They won the Coppa Italia that they'd not won for 20 years. And I think we see the same thing now. I think Allegri caught that kind of, just like he did at Milan, he kind of got inside his own head a little bit. His ideas went a little bit stale. He retreated to playing a much more defensive style. Sarri came with this promise of, of Sarismo, of Sarri ball, um, of, of this free-flowing attacking football that we saw at Napoli. And I think the biggest criticism I could have of Maurizio Sarri is that when it came to it in the biggest games, he didn't kind of he didn't have the balls to go through with it. And he went back to what Allegri was doing and, and played that that safer, more cautious style. Um, and his team selections reflected that. And I think you look at Pilo, okay, it's only two games, but I think the fact that he played the same, pretty much the same 11 and definitely the same system and tactics and approach. Um, he made two changes to the 11, but I think he, he went with exactly the same system, exactly the same um, attacking approach that he outlined in his in his thesis that you discussed, the, the cross between um, Lippi's Juve and Guardiola's Barcelona, if you like, that free-flowing, sometimes it's a back three, sometimes it's a back four. The fact that he did that away against Roma in his second game, if he sticks with that throughout his career and that's the way that he wants to go, that's where he'll make the difference for Juve. Because I think throughout this 10-year spell of, of unprecedented domestic success, they've done, like I spoke about before, the difference between Ancelotti and Allegri. The, the difference between Juve winning in Serie A and winning in the Champions League is their willingness to take risks. I think with Conte, with Allegri after his first couple of seasons and definitely after the, the loss in Cardiff to Real Madrid, uh, and with Sarri last season, I think they've been too cautious. They're trying to win 1-0 when you look at the Champions League and, and you can't win the Champions League 1-0. You know, yeah, OK, Barcelona, Bayern Munich won the final 1-0 this year, but you're not going to 1-0 your way all the way to the trophy. You have to be able to win a 4-3, a 5-2, uh, a whatever. And and Juve have never been in a position where they could do that with with Sarri, with Allegri, with Conte. And I think if Pirlo keeps to to, the, to his philosophy, to what we've seen in these first two games, that's the kind of performances that you're going to get. That's the kind of approach that you're going to get, the mentality you're going to get. And that's what you have been so sorely lacking, somebody who can who can deliver that and who has the the the, the guts to, to stick with it and see it through. And I think Pirlo, because of this nonchalant persona that he's built up around himself and because of the the credibility that he has because he is Andrea Pirlo, because everybody loves him, as we've said already, because everybody can make these quotes and compare him to whoever and, and talk about him not caring about pressure, about warm-ups, all of that. It's It gives him the time where, well, if they lose in the Champions League, if they lose a 3-2 game, he can just shrug and say, well, I tried. And everybody <laughs> will go, oh, there's Pirlo, he tried. Nobody's going to crucify him for it the way they would on a Max Allegri or a Maurizio Sarri. He doesn't have that same pressure because he's got that credibility already because he is Andrea Pirlo. And I think if he can if he can stick with that and if he can stick to taking the risks like we've seen in the, in the Roma game in particular, where even when they went down to 10 men, he just took off a midfielder and put Douglas Costa on. And I think if he can if he can bring that that devil may care attitude, he's clearly got a lot of tactical acumen. We've seen already in these first two games, he's making moves, he's making decisions that that really hint at that 
that that philosophy that he wrote about in his thesis is something that's ingrained in his mind and that is the vision that he had as a player is a, a similar vision he has as a manager but with a little bit more um, tenacity than we associate with Pirlo generally. I, I think if you can ally all of those things, then it's it does have all the makings of a, a very, very good coach. Obviously, obviously, Mark is absolutely 100% correct to say that it's a huge gamble. The guy, the guy was a coach for a week before he was given the Juve job. He never coached a match. The the win over Sampdoria was his first game as a coach. Not not his first game in the top flight, not his first game in Syria. It was his first game as a coach. You know, he's not coached his kids. He's not he's not been in, in a, a youth team league or he's done nothing. He was he was appointed the under twenty three boss a week before. Then they sacked Zara and gave him the top job. And now he's he's the Juventus manager. And I think the club have been really smart to surround him with experienced voices. Um, Paolo Botelli has come back as fitness coach, as I said. Igor Tudor is his assistant, who was a, a Juve defender midfielder and a Croatian international in the, the turn of the millennium. Um, and he's been a coach before with Hadjuk Split. He's been a coach in Turkey. He's been the, the Croatian national team coach as well, I think. Um, but he's got a real strong vocal leadership that will help Pirlo. But I've already seen in these first two games, Pirlo's on the touchline, he's shouting instructions. He's much more similar to to Max Allegri than he is to Antonio Conte, but he does have a voice. He does command respect, as Mark said. And and it's this massive gamble. But as like, like with the playing style in the Champions League, you're not going to win the Champions League being safe, are you? Look at the Bayern Munich coach. He's, the, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You take these huge risks with Pep Guardiola, with with whoever and and Zidane and it, it it pays off and that's these are the guys who are winning the trophies you know Diego Simeone Atletico Madrid would be another example he went to to Catania and had that experience sure but I think the, the one thing I keep coming back to is that time in MLS is almost like Pirlo's apprenticeship in if he'd have been the under twenty three coach in in the third division in Italy where they play I think it would have been a similar experience of getting used to to working in anonymity, to relative anonymity, obviously, because he is Andrea Pilo, but working out of the main mainstream media limelight of, of working with lesser players. He did it as a player rather than doing it as a coach. And I think Zidane went out at the top level. Guardiola went, okay, he had a bit of time at Brescia and Roma, but he went out at the, at the highest level too. Um, Simeone did as well. And and Pilo didn't. Pilo went to MLS and he had that little little experience that that, that really is is there really that much difference between doing that and and being a coach in in the, the Italian third division? Like, to me, it's it's very similar. Apart from the fact he's not coaching, he's he's going to have the same life experience, and I think that that really is what it comes down to, isn't it? Is is does he have the experience to to make a difference on the sideline? And I think that's that's what we're all going to wait to find out, and that's what this makes this season in Serie A so so intriguing and so exciting to watch. Is for the first time one of the big teams has actually taken a massive gamble. Certainly, yeah. I think it's interesting too, you mentioned Guardiola being a pressure because, of course, he was signed to replace Pirlo. So it's an interesting link that they have together. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to the Serie A season because the idea of Pirlo going up against Conte um, in the Derby dell'Italia, you know, his former coach and kind of mentor, and then also Pirlo playing against Reno Gattuso, in uh, the, the north-south class between Juventus and Napoli, it's kind of a lot of meltwatering, meltwatering fixtures to come. You know, um, yeah, that's this weekend as well, by the way. Is it? Yeah, yeah. So we can we can see how Nutella and shit coach against each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! 
And, and for you, Mark, do you think that um, Pirlo is the appointment that could send Juve into the next level, the next level they've been looking for for so long? I, I genuinely don't know at this stage, and I'll, I'll be <laughs> freely admit that I've, I've had to do you know two or three articles on it already. And I mean, there's a lot in his favour, as as Adam has has kind of wonderfully articulated there, um, and we, we've touched on previously. He has that reputation, he has that status. He's clearly, uh, as Adam says, got some really interesting ideas. Uh, tactically, he's, he seems very clued in. We've, he's, it's been very, yeah, it's been impressive so far. Even just okay, a two all draw down at Roma, but they did that with ten men. Um, but it's been a solid start, and I, I do think, as, as as Adam hammered home, that he will be given more time and patience than Sari because because of who he is and because there's so much positivity towards him. And I mean, you already have people like uh, Aaron Ramsey coming out saying the training is so much. We're having more fun than we did this season, you know. So there's already these little things coming out. It's clear that the players weren't happy there last year. Um, that Sari struggled to adapt, and as as, as Adam pointed out, if you, if you don't, if you lose the courage of your convictions, you're pretty much dead in the water. I remember even Gary Neville saying that when he went to Valencia, that horrible, horrible spell in charge. You know, his his little brief uh, attempt at being a coach, and he said, once I once I stopped, you know, sticking to my principles. But I abandoned my ideas, I, I was gone. I was a sitting duck. But I think Adam is right to stress if if Pirlo sticks to the to, the, to these principles and and what he believes in, because we know he's a very very intelligent guy, and we know that he has an incredible vision of the game. So if he does, and I think the positive is that he will be given time to implement the, these ideas. I think there will be a, a degree of understanding that won't wouldn't be afforded to a different character. You know, this guy's a living legend for. As far as Italian football, even in general, is concerned, and he and he does have very close ties with Juventus, and already, and even I think he alluded to the fact a couple of weeks ago. He says it's been easier for me to settle in because I I know a lot of the people that are here already. So you're talking about the photo as well. You know, he, he has strong bonds with these guys, and I think they're going to give him, you know, a bit more time, a bit more patience um, than they would have afforded someone else. Because at the end of the day, Juve is a club that is, you know, the only thing that matters is is winning. They want to get, they want to win in Europe, and. I think it's it's a positive thing that he's already talking and studying the Champions League because that is where it's at. And as Adam says, you've got to take gambles. You've got to play a certain way in Europe to win. And he said uh, only a couple of weeks ago, I watched I watched the, the Champions League last season Look at and look at all the teams that went the furthest. They're teams that win the ball high up the pitch. They're teams that are, put on, are aggressive and they put on pressure. That's what I want from my team. So that's what we're going to see this season. And I think I, I, because it's going to be a very competitive season and... Obviously, people would see it as a disaster. You know, if if they didn't win the league, it was like, oh my god, they've won nine in a row. How did how did Pirlo not win the league with Juventus? You know, I think if they see progress in Europe, if they see that Pirlo, if Pirlo shows that he's capable, that he, that he's a coach capable of implementing a style that will be successful in Europe, I think that would be enough for him. You know, I, I realize there will there will be pressure, and I've already said that myself. Um, and he's going to come under intense scrutiny the longer the season goes on. If he can show, yes. These are my ideas. You know, my ideas are, are new. They're different. They will work. Or they start to show dividends, and they they start to show. You know, you may want different to Sari because they wanted a different style. If if Pirlo can deliver that, I think it will be a success, and he'll be given that patience that he needs to. Because you do need time in modern football, and you know, people bring up Jurgen Klopp and stuff like that. You do need experience, and Pirlo in particular because he's, he's in his coaching infancy. It, it can happen, and I go back to we mentioned Guardiola, we mentioned Zidane. I remember when Guardiola took over at Barcelona, uh, people were questioning him. They were asking, you know, fans were even asking, why didn't they go for Mourinho? And uh, Guardiola, I think he lost his first game in La Liga. 
and he was slated in the press over it. And it was also like, what are they doing? This is terrible, this and that. And Johan Cruyff came out in the press and said, it was one of the more interesting games he'd seen in years. Stick with Guardiola, believe in him. What he's trying to do here is very interesting. And obviously we know what happened next. And even Iniesta, one of the, the key players, obviously in the dressing room, went to Guardiola and he, he's, Iniesta was known as a very softly spoken character and went and said, stick, with, stick to what you're doing, boss. We're going we're gonna to kill everyone this year. We're going to destroy everyone this year. Don't, don't lose faith. And I think Guardiola, Pirlo have a similar impact to Guardiola in that he will have the support of players uh, because of what he, he has achieved in the past. And he'll have patience and, and, uh, and the real support from those above him because he has this existing relationship with them. So, that would give me hope if I were a Juve fan. I'd gone, this could be the, the one, as Adam said, this could be the game changer. This could be the one that takes them to the next level in, in Europe. Because that, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about for Juve. After years of domestic success, it's all about Europe. I think if Pirlo shows he has the formation and the ideas and the tactics to make an impact in Europe and to, to really trouble other teams and, and to show that they can play that you know high, aggressive, you know, passing um, game and recovering the ball quick, as soon as they lose it, I think he, he could be a spectacular success because um, he's definitely got the he's, he's definitely got the support and the positivity from the fans and, and even a lot of neutrals to be honest will be looking at it and hoping he does as well. Yeah, I think the key word is what you mentioned: interesting. Like you can't be sure if it's going to be a success or a failure, but it will definitely be interesting to see how he gets on at Juventus and as a head coach in general for his career. Um, but guys, thank you very much for joining me today. I think it was a very interesting discussion, a great insight into Andre Pirlo's life and career. So uh, thank you very much. Um, Mark, Adam, where can we find you? And uh, do you have any pieces you want to publicize before we uh, finish up? Is that with you, Mark? Uh, yeah, you, can, you can find me on um, yeah, on Twitter and the likes. Um, and uh, yeah, on goal.com, pretty much on the video features editor there. So do a lot of features, not just on... Um, on Serie A, but uh, yeah, European football in general. But because I'm, I'm based and living over here, I do a lot of a lot of stuff on, uh, on Italian football on Serie A. So that means uh, a lot of stuff on on Pirlo this season. I, I expect, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to covering it and uh, and seeing how it pans out for Pirlo this season. Brilliant, Dan. For you, Adam. Yeah, the same, the same, the same. You can find me on Twitter, obviously, and and I've, I've just written about PLO's second game in charge for for ten bets. So you give that a read and and check that out. But yeah, thanks a lot. That was great. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, uh, and for me, uh, you can find me at Azul Feeling. I have a feature recently about Sergio Canales, uh, the Real Betis midfielder, and uh, the kind of role he's playing in their recent resurgence. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for joining me. Alan and Mark and also thanks to the listeners for joining us um, I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it instructive um, and we'll see you next week for some more bye